welcome to Language Chats. This is a podcast for language lovers in Australia and beyond where we share our experiences of language learning with you, as well as the stories of other Australians and a few international guests who love learning, working with and communicating using other languages. I'm Penny. And I'm Beck, And we'd like to um, begin by acknowledging the traditional owners of the land on which we're recording today, the Wadawurrung people and the Wurundjeri people, and we pay our respects to their elders past and present. And Penny, we're excited today because we have a guest with us, Jenna Lobianco. Welcome to Language Chats. Thank you for having me, ladies. This is very exciting. This is very exciting. Now, Jenna, I have (laughs) to say, I've known, Jenna and I have been friends for, for a while now, and... Jenna, you are the kind of teacher who I wish I had at school. Let's just start with that. That's, <laughs> I have a lot of respect for you and I'm really excited for us to chat today because I think you have lots of really, really interesting things to say about language, um, the Italian language in particular. Um, but all of that, just 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 to preface the conversation, um, I think that's that's a really important thing to note out, just have a lot of respect for you, Jenna. Yeah. Thank <laughs> now, you. The respect we... is mutual. <laughs> <laughs> now, could you tell us a little bit about yourself and your relationship with the Italian language to get things started? Yeah, sure. Um, so, uh, like you've said, I'm an Italian teacher. I have always taught in the high school classroom. Um, I've taught here in Australia and I also uh, have taught Italian overseas. I had a, a stint teaching in the UK, which was great fun as well. Um, I guess my more general, you know, broad background is that I'm a mum of two and living a crazy life that's super busy. Um, I'm a PhD candidate and I'm doing a doctoral research in the Faculty of Education at Monash University, uh, specialising in Italian language education. Uh, I'm a writer. Um, I'm, I do lots of, lots of crazy things. And as I say the list, I just, yeah, I feel very tired. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I, like I'm, I'm always tired thinking about all of the things that you do, um, <laughs> but all of those are good things. And you say that they're crazy. Very good. They're not. They're not crazy. There's there's, like, there's you a lot know going on there that's good stuff. But you know what? It's funny. Like as my career has sort of developed and grown, I think I've just realised how interconnected um, all these experiences are, and they all root back to language at the end of the day, right? And it's language and it's culture and community. And I wouldn't be doing any of this stuff if it weren't for my language, because it's opened all the doors and all the windows and blown up, you know, holes through the ceiling to allow me to do all these crazy things. And I think, uh, people really underestimate where a language can take you professionally. And, I, you know, I guess perhaps it's, there's, there's the idea that, oh, you learn a language, you're going to travel or you'll end up um, perhaps in politics or diplomacy or something like that or, you know, in the tourism industry maybe. But it really can take you to so many other places that you simply just don't think about at the time when you go on that language journey. And I think my crazy inverted commas journey is sort of a testament to that. So my my background with Italian is heritage. So my family is Italian. Um, my grandparents uh, came to Australia in that post-World War II uh, migration wave. Uh, and so my parents were first-generation Australian 
and I'm second generation Australian, but I'm also now an Italian citizen. So that was a, a really important milestone that I wanted to hit and I wanted that for myself, uh, not just for my own identity and to acknowledge what I've always known to be true, that I'm very much more Italian than Australian, um, but also for my children uh, and for their future and for their children to be able to have that uh, bureaucratic I, you know, identity of being Italian, I guess. With your, uh, I guess your, you've mentioned that you've got two two little kids. So is, is is Italian language a big a big thing in your family as well with your children now? Yes, it is. But look, Penny, it's so hard to maintain a bilingual household. It's just so difficult. And as soon as you are tired, the first thing that seems to drop is the second language and we slip into you know comfortable patterns I really try my husband really tries um you know as well to get in as much Italian as we can um not only just through language but culture as well and the way we play with with culture and language in this house but yeah it's very very difficult but they know uh, they know that Italy is a place my children well my daughter's two and a half and my son's four and a half they know that Italy is a place and they know it's very very far away um, they know what words are Italian and, 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 you know, which words are English that they speak and they can move between them now uh, on cue as well. And I can call them out and say, in Italiano or whatever it might be, and then they'll give me the other version. So I think we're at a point now where they've got a, an awareness of this kind of, tra- you know, code switching that's, that's happening, which is quite interesting as well through a teacher lens to, to watch. Uh, yeah, but it's something we're trying so hard. But, you know, COVID's not helped over the last few years. Otherwise, we would have, you know, schlepped up, to, <laughs> schlepped up to Italy. But that's just not been possible for us. So, yeah, it's on the horizon. <laughs> yeah, definitely the, um, I think, the difficulties or at least the, the, the struggles, but the, the challenges, maybe that's a better word, the challenges of, um, you know, trying to parent bilingually um, <laughs> are really evident. And there have been some people who we've spoken to on this podcast, especially recently. Um, we spoke to a lovely woman um, named Sheila. Um, if you want to listen back to that episode for anybody who is interested, um, we'll pop the link in the show notes to that. But we spoke specifically about um, raising bilingual families um, when we had a chat with her. Now, Jenna, back to you. Um, so let's hop back to when you were a kid, though. Um, tell us about the place that Italian had in your within your family. Is this where it all started and then, you know, your studies from there on in? Yeah, you know what? It wasn't always a journey of love for me and Italian because um, my parents only spoke dialect. They didn't speak standardised Italian, right? Um, So they spoke two variations of Calabrese dialect from the south simply because that was what was spoken in their households. So that was what I was raised on. And I was primarily um, a monolingual Italian speaker until I went to primary school. Um, And, you know, my mum even says that there are moments that, you know, I started saying I don't want to speak this language anymore because I was getting frustrated that I couldn't communicate um, with the people around me. Anyway, uh, you know, being in that kind of 
toing and froing kind of space of I don't want to be here I want to be here this is part of my identity even as a young person and you know and then you meet your Italian teacher at primary school and have like a mental breakdown because you're trying to get away from this thing um you know (laughs) but then the irony of it all is that I got to high school um and I loved school I loved my high school and I had a transformative moment where I met my Italian teacher and she was, well, actually in year seven, I had the choice of three different language pathways. I could have done French, Indonesian or Italian. I ended up continuing with Italian because I was good at it. I wanted to do French though, because I was also very good at French, but um, Italian was just superior for me. So I continued and then I met my Italian teacher And I just remember looking at this woman and thinking, you are just the coolest person I've ever met because she's just like a firecracker (laughs) that just went off in class. And I just remember going, oh, you're just amazing and I need to be just like you. And she made me love my language. So in terms of the transformative moment, you know, and she knows this, we're still in in close contact after all these years. And that was, oh, gosh, uh, 2000, 2000. Oh my gosh. So yeah, now we're old. Um, but she, uh, she knows she had this impact on me and, um, yeah, I ended up loving Italian from then on and did it right through high school and was always good. Wasn't always the best student in my class. Um, I wasn't, I certainly wasn't the best in my year 12 class. I was up there. Um, but that never phased me because it was something I loved and I was obsessed with it. Oh my gosh, I would go home and watch movies over and over again and transcribe what I could hear and then compare with the subtitles, you know, it became an, an obsession and then took it off to university uh, and, and the story continued at the University of Melbourne. So did you study teaching straight out of uh, out of high school with this, you know, this this teacher in your heart, you know, was she leading you towards the faculty of education? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I I knew that I wanted to teach, but I didn't start with a teaching degree. I actually have a Bachelor of Creative Arts from um, Melbourne Uni, which is now a defunct um, degree. It doesn't exist anymore when they rejigged and pulled out the Melbourne model. Um, But I was one of the last, I think I was the last group or maybe the second last group to be able to graduate with the um, Bachelor of Creative Arts. So I specialise in theatre studies um, because I love drama as well at school. Um, and when Melbourne pulled the pin on the smaller schools and, and departments within the university, um, that really narrowed down for our last year the subjects that we could do, which worked out brilliantly for me. I loved it because then I got to choose um, some subjects out of the arts faculty to finish my degree. So I was able to do art history which has really influenced who I am now as a person, uh, cinema studies and lots of other things that now come through my teaching and the work that I do outside the classroom. So for me, it was great. I love the Melbourne model. <laughs> um, and then after that, um, I because I got really good marks, I was able to go straight into the um, uh, Master of Teaching and I did that. And I was able to also pick up a because of my marks, I was able to pick up a third teaching method, which was English. So I have Italian uh, drama, theatre studies and English literature because I also studied a diploma of modern languages in all this madness as well for my Italian. So that's sort of how all that kind of came together. And, yeah, a big old nerd. <laughs> <laughs> 
Aren't we all really? <laughs> You're among friends. <laughs> yeah, that's right. It's very much, very much a case. That's why we're here. <laughs> so from that transition into, you know, doing a master of teaching, how, how did that then, how did that then transform where you saw where your career would progress and how it would develop from that point onwards? You know, I really, I loved teaching and I finished my master's with a research project uh, and that project taught me how to research and it's far from perfect and I don't want it to see the light of day simply because, you know, it was the trial and error of how to be a researcher and conduct academic research. Um, but it's um, it was through that experience and the, and the marks that I got for that that allowed me entry to a PhD. Uh, which I'm so grateful for because I always thought um, I had big questions about practice um, and, you know, I've been blessed to work in great schools. That's not, that's never been, you know, questioned. It's just big questions about practice in education. Uh, and, you know, I've built a community of teachers around me, a community of Italian and language teachers around me. And when I just would hear stories over the, you know, the early years of my teaching about what they were experiencing, I just thought, gosh, there's such a disconnect here. Something needs to be done. And that sort of led me down what I always thought I would do, which would be a, a PhD because, you know, it's really hard to change practice unless you've got that deep, you know, highly nuanced skill set and knowledge. I was going to say, Jenna, when you, when you talk about these things that kind of set off alarm bells in you as an early stage um, career teacher. Are you talking about things like curriculum development or um, teaching methodology or what kind of things were kind of striking you out as being NQR? <laughs> um, you know when it was? It was when I would go to conferences and I would – watch what was happening in the sessions and I would hear what teachers are saying, you know, was their reality? Because I, you know, had great experiences, uh, you know, in my professional world. Um, and I'm like, well, there's a disconnect here that there's such inconsistency between everyone's reality that I needed to, you know, delve, you know, deeper into it. I think there are, you know, Curriculum's one thing and curriculum, you know, comes in waves and changes. It's like a revolving door, right? So that's one thing we have to keep, you know, abreast of. Then there's developments in technology we need to keep abreast of. Then there's policy change that, you know, affects things like funding and then program impact. And, you know, it's just so we're always walking on a tightrope, I think. Um, and that sort of made me think, well, the only way I can get to the bottom of this is to go big and I had to go big with a PhD and what I'm doing now, like my project now is not what I started with. Um, I remember when I went to the uni and I, I put in my application and I approached some um, academics to, to supervise what I, it was very much pedagogically focused my research and I was going to look at particular teaching approaches for grammar um, and then I quickly worked out as I started to pull apart the literature. There's no point in trying to change pedagogical, pro, you know, practices if the system is broken. 
So then I went, okay, I have to go bigger. So I'm looking at Italian language education in Victoria as a, as a, essentially like a case study. Um, and I'm trying to work out all my, my three research questions are about what, uh, we do well. So what our strengths are, what is challenging us, and then how teachers develop theories of practice in relation to those two other points. So yeah, I've ended up in quite a top down, you know, big, big, huge question and, and looking at how it's impacting us at a school local level now. So hopefully, hopefully I can help bring about some positive change. But I think a lot of teachers will read the research when, when I get to publish it and go, mm, none of this strikes us as particularly new because it's been the reality for so long. But finally, we, I guess we have some data and formal research to support it. Fascinating. <laughs> really, really interesting. And everything that you are saying here, I'm like, I feel like every language teacher I know <laughs> has expressed to some degree their, the challenges that they face, especially if they do work in, in schools, um, the challenges that they face as language teachers. And when you, when you mention things about, you know, yes, there are curriculum-based concerns but they're always around yes there are funding based concerns but they're always around too and it does feel like the same the same issues have always been have always been there that doesn't mean that it isn't something that should change though um so a really interesting piece of work that you're undertaking but I also well thank you I appreciate that um the other thing that I really wanted to focus on were those strengths because I think so so much of the time we're bogged down in the negative and what's not working let's fix what's broken you know and we come at it from that perspective um but I also really wanted to look at what we think we're doing well in our practice because I think what we think we're doing really well and what we're achieving and when we're succeeding can actually teach us so much about how to fix the other stuff too so yeah I guess that's the other side of the coin um, that I'm really passionate about and, and I'm really, I really can't wait to share what, what's come out because there's some really beautiful stuff that reminds people why we're language teachers because we're very special. <laughs> we, look forward to, we look forward to hearing about it and maybe reading it. I would, you know, if you ever, when, when it's all ready. <laughs> uh, on a quiet Friday night with a glass of red, you can have my 80,000 words and do whatever the heck you want to do with them. Hilarious. <laughs> it absolutely sounds like my kind of reading. But anyway, <laughs> now, you, mentioned, um, you mentioned conferences earlier um, and attending conferences and seeing other teachers there. Um, has So since the time when you were, you know, really compelled to go and do this study, do you think that anything has changed since then? Have you have you noticed any change in the, um, I guess, sentiments? I think things have got worse. Yeah. Um, I think the challenges will, particular things will never change. Um, you know, we can't suddenly make every school in Australia you know, prioritise timetabling for languages over every other side. Like, like there are always going to inherently be big picture issues that we can't change, right? Um, but I, I, I think, I think we, I think things have got worse, and or perhaps we're just getting more tired and more burned out. And I don't. And COVID most certainly has impacted languages significantly. 
um, you know, primary teachers have got some pretty sad stories about what's happened during the lockdown homeschooling situation. Um, and that's not has, doesn't have anything to do with my research. I'm not looking at primary primary um, sector, but it, yeah, I've just anecdotally heard from a lot of primary um, teachers that that's been really really tough because their hours weren't always prioritized in that experience for kids it's in schools uh, learning from home. So yeah, I think I think people are just really sick of fighting. And I think particularly the teachers that have been around for decades who are perhaps towards that last part of the last stretch of their career, you know, they're the ones that have got the biggest war wounds and they will tell you exactly how it is because what's changed predominantly in the last couple of years is we've seen more systemic processes put in place essentially to help, um, you know, you know, school systems or whatever is happening at a local level, um, but it's creating a lot more paperwork for teachers and it's taking time away from the joy and the passion of the creating and having fun and the play and all of that sort of stuff. So, yeah, I think if you spoke to the majority of teachers today, they would probably tell you that the situation is uh, far more difficult than, say, five years ago, ten years ago. So, Jenna, with... With the research, I know that you're you're focused on our state, Victoria, and I know this is probably a very Australian kind of focused question, but I know there's been a lot of talk nationally about, you know, relooking at teachers' roles and, and the whole, you know, teaching system as a whole, education, development, curriculum, you know, the whole suite. Um, I'm assuming that languages is part of this overhaul but then making assumptions like that is never a very <laughs> safe <laughs> thing to do have you been you know across any of the discussions that are going on at a national level about what if anything will be looked at from a from a language perspective no I look I've not been a part of any of those discussions I could put in a wish list if anyone wants to listen <laughs> I, you should <laughs> a naughty and nice list for Santa you know <laughs> But, you know, like I guess, Penny, and this is, you know, when I did my literature review and this is what essentially turned my focus from a pedagogical perspective to a big picture, this is what's happening perspective, um, you know, I could see the numbers play out in front of me as to what happens when governments put funding in particular places. And you see the knock-on effects of attrition. You see the closures of programs and the opening of other programs. You know, and we we love all languages. We want everyone to be learning language, whatever the heck it is. You know, at the end of the day, we just want kids to be doing that. My perspective will always be Italian because this is my area of specialty, right? So that's sort of where my focus gets sort of zoomed in. But when you see what happens with the funding and its allocation and then how it does cause the closure and shutdown as well in other areas, it's a double-edged sword. You know, when you boost one side, you kind of impact negatively on another. So, look, there's no right or wrong, I think, at this point, Penny. We just want them to be running the programs, you know, for better, for worse. That's going to be a win. Yep, of course. Makes sense. And especially when we have so many passionate teachers out there like yourselves who are willing to you know, give so much of your energy and ability and knowledge onto, you know, 
students out there who are interested in learning languages. So that's something that definitely should not be wasted. Um, Speaking of passion, though, so tell us a bit more about your experience as an educator and what that, the kind of benefits that that has given you or the learnings and the things that have really come out of that for you in your career so far. Um, because I have to say, and like as when we, <laughs> first thing I said when we started this episode, you really are one of the most passionate and enthusiastic teachers that I know. Um, and I'm so encouraged by that. When I meet people like you, and actually we've interviewed, we've interviewed a few teachers on this podcast, but I feel very similarly about um, Katarina Forrester, who is somebody who we interviewed um, not that long ago. We'll also pop a um, link in the show notes to that episode too if you're interested in hearing another perspective from um, a teacher in Australia. Um, but I'm, I'm so encouraged to, to hear from and to talk to such enthusiastic, passionate teachers who I can really tell give their students reason and energy to want to study languages so from yeah from your perspective like tell us a little bit about what that experience is like as a teacher what are some of the great moments that you have when you can really tell that you've had an impact on a student um when they tell you they're going to be an Italian teacher oh that's got to be the ideal is it (laughs) yeah yeah I've had a few of them now um and you never forget those ones and you know the kids you know, the kids who make you a better teacher and the ones that push you because they're great and, you know, you got to up the, you know, your game. I've had quite a few of them. But knowing that every day is a day of joy, that's the best job. You know, when you know you're going to walk in to a space you've created to a world you have control over that you get to share with other young minds, that is just such a privilege. It's so, and it's so rare, I think, today to know that you can have that long-lasting, lifelong-lasting effect and impact on someone, you know. And, and you know, I've, I've had kids in the past come back to me years later and say, oh, I should have kept going, miss, and, you know, I'm really sorry, yeah, I couldn't do this or whatever, or they do, they say, I, I, you know, I stopped in year nine or year 10, but I did it at uni and whatever. So, you know, you can still have that impact years later without realizing it. But for me, it's been, or it's always been about the joy, you know, passion, you know, it's contagious and enthusiasm is infectious. So we as the teachers have to model it. And if you're not feeling the love for what you're doing, the kids will read it on your face, mm-hmm. you know, and I'm all about, you know, having a really, you know, having open discussions with them about all sorts of things and how I've been feeling, I'm having a great day or I'm not having a great day or whatever it is, but they can totally read if you're being, you know, disingenuous. So, yeah, I think love what you do and they're going to love it back. Oh, I feel like, you know, yeah, we could package you up <laughs> and put you into an advert as a, as a, you know, <laughs> this is why you should become a language teacher, people. <laughs> Ministry of Foreign Affairs, I'm waiting for your call. (laughs) (laughs) But it's true. Like, come on, when that, you know, when that student says to you, I'm going to do education, I'm going to be a teacher and I'm going to be a languages teacher, that's that's the ultimate, don't you think? Yeah. Like that's. That's huge. Oh, 
it is. It is. It is the ultimate because somebody somebody else has to keep carrying on the the good work. <laughs> what about the kids though that are, and you know, not all kids are super engaged and super enthusiastic. What about the ones that just you can tell that really don't want to be in your classroom? So that's when we differentiate uh, and we try and tailor, uh, you know, and it's particularly when you're coming to the end of the, you know, compulsory period of study, you know, you can see them, you know, the energy waning or whatever. You just have to get them with other things that engage them and perhaps, you know, they've, you know, miss I'm not going to do this anymore this isn't what I want great okay well let's find out what you are able to do and let's work that to the end and I think sometimes if you meet them on that level playing field they respect you for it Mm. and say well I really still want you here for the next term or whatever it is and you know your mates are here we're gonna have a great time anyway and you're still going to learn lots of great stuff that you'll remember and I think if you just have that really open and honest chat and just be you know on their level you, you win them over anyway. They just need to feel heard and understood. And that's fine because I didn't like everything at school, but I did it. Like I was a terrible math student and I still did it to year 12. And, oh, my God, my teachers must have been saints putting up with me in my terrible math school, <laughs> my math skills. So, you know, it, I you know, try and draw on that as well. <laughs> well, Jenna, I'm going to change tack slightly. And I know that you mentioned it very quickly at the start of your your intro to the podcast but that you're a writer could you tell us a little bit about that aspect of your career and what you write about yeah sure look there's a few different angles to my writing I've done um, some sort of editorial stuff uh, and I'm one of the writers for the segmental magazine um, and I've been writing for them for about six years now six seven years maybe some, somewhere around that, that space of time um, so you know I've had incredible opportunities to interview celebrities musicians, sportsmen and women like just crazy amazing people um and I you know so that's been really beautiful and great for my networking because I've met all these amazing people from around the world uh so that started because I simply approached the magazine many many years ago and I said "Mm, if you're ever interested in writing a piece about Italian language education in Australia let's chat and then that went well and then it kind of just went on from there um I've done educational publishing as well and I've worked in the textbook space uh, and consulted in the textbook space as well as writing and developing that sort of stuff, which was really lovely. I really liked working uh, on that project that I did for for, four or five years. Um, And now I am very passionately uh, placed in the fiction space um, writing books, Uh, so sort of long-form women's fiction uh, that definitely 100% uses all of the language and culture and all the stuff that we learn, you know, we pick up as we learn about a country and its language. Yeah, but in my books. So that's that's my, well, I say latest, but not really latest because I started my first manuscript 10 years ago. So, But that's sort of where my heart is at the moment as well. So, yes. Oh, wow, Jenna. So you're yeah, fiction as well. I can't believe it. It's amazing. So when you, so are we talking like rom com style fiction novels? Yeah, well, I guess you could say in that sort of um, yeah, uh, feel good uh, women's pick it up, read it on a beach while you're on holiday, sort of 
great vibey stuff, but it's very much in the Italian space. So basically, you know, every time, you know, and my work is not autobiographical at all. There's, you know, there's nothing there, you know, of my life essentially, but um, you can't help when you're so deeply ingrained and connected to a language and a culture but, you know, but write about it. And that's essentially what I do because I know so much and I've lived and seen so much that, yeah, it just comes through and it comes through really easily for me. So when I get to create these little worlds, I just go, okay, what did that street look like that time I walked down, you know, and then it disappears and then I just find myself at my computer like in this position <laughs> with my head down just thinking and going, okay, right, and then there was that cobblestone and then we did, okay, mm-hmm, yeah, okay, and it smelled like that. Yeah, okay, and then it just happens because we've lived, you know, because I've lived so much that, yeah, but definitely not autobiographical but just influenced by life, if you know what I mean. Can I ask how did you when you when you said you know you started your first manuscript ten years ago, what made you say I'm gonna like what made you think I'm gonna start I'm gonna start writing this down? I have to say like as personally I the whole idea of writing something as long as a novel um, <laughs> actually completely terrifies me. I don't think I'd ever have the patience for that, and so I'm completely like in admiration of people who write things that are that long because. I, I can't imagine writing something as long as a novel or even as long as a thesis really. Um, and like, yeah, what, what compelled you when you thought one day I'm going to start writing this? Okay, it's funny because that's not at all what I thought when I sat down. <laughs> so my husband and I, this is when we were living overseas and we had this big amazing 12 months away and we were stuck in Mykonos and we don't, didn't have our luggage, but I had my laptop and it was really hot. It was like 40 plus something hot, sticky day. And we were waiting for a call for our luggage. And he, he was zonked out on one bed because it's so hot. And I was there with my laptop and I thought, okay, this is just something to sit, turn on the laptop and open a document. So I did. And I just got a vision of my main character from my first book and I don't know what the heck compelled me to pen any of it down, but I saw this woman, this young woman, and she walks down a flight of stairs and she's got all her gear. She's an artist. And then she walks through these double doors and steps out onto cobblestones. And that was the moment that I saw her and I'm like, what is this? What is happening in my brain? Like, okay. And then I just kept writing and like what she did and what happened. And then this other character appeared and then it ended up being like 3000 words. And then I had to save the file and I'm like, Oh, what am I going to call this thing? Like it was a mishmash of absolute gibberish. And then I called it Rome story, um, which is not its title now, but anyway, (laughs) and that was the start of the book. And you know what? I didn't, I didn't do anything with it for a long time um, because life didn't allow that to happen. But I always had it there, and every now and then I would, you know, over the years that followed, I'd open it and read it and go, "There's something here," and I just let it fester, and I let it kind of ferment and you know get all bubbly and like a like a sourdough starter and just keep growing and growing, and then it just blew up over the top of the <laughs> the jar. And I had to finish the book. And in that time that I'd, you know, allowed it to fester and 
ferment, the narrative or the plot had built in my head and I'd pieced together how I how I thought this could end up working and I ended up with 95,000 words and I had a full manuscript. So, yeah, from that one little, oh, I'm going to sit there, it was like sort of like a writing prompt you would do in high school in an English classroom and then it just exploded and, yeah, it just took this really natural kind of shape and then it ended up, yeah, it, I don't want to give too much away but it was it came really organically. And then the second time, so I've got two books now, the second time was much more purposeful because I had done the first and I'm like, okay, I know what to do now. It's not going to take me all these years. And I sat there and I started it one night and I got like four chapters down, which is probably around 10,000 words, which is hours and hours of work, but it just came out of me. And then I didn't do much because I'd had my second child and, you know, life was a mess. And then I got to a point where I was like, okay, I need to finish this book. And I sat down over nine weeks and wrote 75,000 words and I wrote my second. Wow. But this is when I say like when you know something so intimately like language and culture that is a part of your identity, it's part of who you are and it comes second nature to you, you know, I, you can't contain it. So it just poured onto the laptop, you know, onto, onto, onto the screen and that's where it is and that's become my process now that it's I'm just driven completely instinctively by authentic culture and language now. What a beautiful impact that language and culture <laughs> has had on your life. I just feel like that is so <laughs> what, a, what a wonderful thing. Thank you. Thank you. That's, yeah, that's, that's, when I look back now and I read them or I, you know, I've got one, it's huge, it's like half a ream of paper. But when I look at it, I go and I just will open it to a page and I giggle at things because I go, I know what this is about, but is anyone going to pick up on the funny little jokes? You know, there's a, there's two goats in one of my manuscripts and they're called Dante and Beatrice. You know, like you'd have to be a language lover to know and know the Divine Comedy and Dante's work to know the kind of irony of there being two characters with, and they're goats. But anyway, but you know, it's, it's that level of nuance that just comes really natural to the writing. So it just happens really quick when I sit down. I think, I think this sounds. I mean, the process of you sitting down and just these thousands and thousands of words just pouring out, especially that that first time back in Mykonos when you didn't have that intention of writing a novel and it just came to you. I just, I don't know, I just got little chills listening to you because I just thought that's just amazing, just all this creativity and energy that just came out at the right time. Well, you know, like I wrote my first picture book in grade one so how old would I be like six six (laughs) yeah and I remember my teacher at the time you know she's like oh it's a really good it's really good it's amazing whatever I still have that book and you know I I want to show it to my agent now and say hey can we do something with this because I think there might be something to this because I don't know I think I've always been a storyteller um and I think you know, I've had kids, my students in the past have said to me, you tell really good stories, miss, you know, and this is when we're teaching culture and teaching language and you build a narrative and you get them all excited. So perhaps that's what it is that's just been 
waiting to come out all these years. I don't, I don't know, but it's coming out and it's rushing and pouring out now. So is there an, a, another novel inside of you? Oh, there's a, there's a few. Don't worry about it. I've got two on the go at the moment. <laughs> oh my goodness. You're amazing. We look, forward to, we look forward to seeing them out there whenever that might be. well jenna you are absolutely full of energy and stories and color and interesting really interesting things and passion um and it's so lovely to hear about how all of this has has colored your life um and has changed everything you know and, and made help helped you to decide what to do um with your time and all of your energy um thank you for sharing all of this with us and of course with all of our listeners um it's so nice to speak to another um wonderful language lover in australia thank you so much for having me it's been lovely and it's always nice to be in uh you know company that sympathizes and empathizes with the language life <laughs> Just feel a bit more normal sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> Much more normal than you think. Yes, that's right. right. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> thank you so much for today. It's been lovely, guys. Thank you, Jenna. And thank you, everyone, for tuning in to another episode of Language Chats. Don't forget you can find our episodes um, fortnightly. If you um, wanting to subscribe, please make sure you do so. And we love hearing yeah. from you. So please, if you get a second, leave us a rating and a review. And also, don't forget, we have, um, well, you can find us in all of the usual internet places. Um, so you can follow us on Instagram, we're languagelovers.au. We also have a book, uh, a book. We also have a group on Facebook. <laughs> Never say no, Beck. <laughs> we don't. We don't. Never say no. <laughs> um, we, have group, <laughs> we have a group on Facebook and it's called Language Lovers AU Community. So if you want to join um, our little group over there, then please join. Um, that's where you can meet other like-minded language lovers um, like us um, or like Jenna um, to chat all things language, um, especially things that are going on in Australia. Um, we like to share what's what's happening in the world of languages that we find ourselves in here and, you know, events that are coming up and other fun things that we find on the internet. Um, so you can, you can join us there um, but then of course find us at our website languagelovers.com.au that's where you can also find all the past episodes of this podcast thanks again jenna and we'll catch you all in another fortnight ciao jenna ciao